Hey everybody, welcome back to 30 Something with Sunny. I am so glad you're here. This is the podcast where we talk all about motherhood, self-care, and second chapters. Reinventions. Oh man. All right, guys, today's episode, I am not gonna lie, is heavy. It is emotional, but it is so, so necessary. And I hope with all of my heart that you listen and uh, take from this some very necessary knowledge that we as parents need to know in this digital age. So the first thing you need to know about today's guest, Alicia Kozakevich or Alicia Kozak, as she calls herself, is that she is a survivor. She is a badass. She is a woman who lived through a literal nightmare who now uses her experience to educate and protect children everywhere. Alicia's story is essentially one of overcoming, and I'm talking overcoming the most intense trauma you can imagine. So you will hear Alicia tell her story in very great detail in this podcast, but here are the basics. As a young girl living in suburban Pittsburgh, Alicia began talking online to someone she thought was her own age. That person turned out to be a man who, through manipulation, managed to get Alicia out of her home and kidnap her. And what followed was days of torture and abuse that was live-streamed on the internet. A nightmare that Alicia miraculously got out of thanks to a tip from a stranger. This is a very intense story, folks. It is emotional, yet it is something you need to hear. July 30th marks World Day Against Trafficking in Persons. That is a day that the UN has designated to raise awareness about the pervasive problem of human trafficking, child sexual abuse, and essentially a fight for resources to fight these shady criminals in whatever form they happen to um, materialize in. So this episode is timely for that reason, but also for another one. If you've been anywhere near an internet connection these days, you certainly have seen talk about what has been now called the Wayfair conspiracy. People talking about theories which haven't been proven, but they are theories about the way in which innocent children are purported to be captured, trafficked, and abused. This is a real problem one that has been lurking in the shadows for decades. And while I am not one to encourage conspiracy theories, and nor is Alicia, I cannot stress enough to you that this problem is real and it's happening more than we know. In this episode, you will hear Alicia's harrowing story, but you will also hear how she emerged from it to dedicate herself to the safety of other kids. We talk about her advocacy We talk about her work in establishing Alicia's Law, which is a law that she worked in tandem with law enforcement to develop in over a dozen states. And I also encourage you to check out her site when this episode is over to learn more about how to protect yourself and your kids. So this episode, guys, it's essential. It is intense. But these days when kids spend more time than ever online, her advice is critical. Please know This episode may be triggering to survivors of abuse or to others, so please listen with that knowledge. As always, I'll be back on the flip side to give you more information on where to find Alicia. Okay, everybody, I'm really excited about this week's podcast episode. We have Alicia, I'm going to call you Alicia Kozak first, but it's Kozakevich, right? Am I saying that correctly? Okay. 
Yeah, you know, well, we are both from Pittsburgh. We're going to get into that shared history in a moment. And I, I can recognize and at least attempt a difficult pronunciation once in a while. Um, I introduced you in the intro, Alicia, but I, um, you know, you're in uh, uh, one of those unique positions where you only you can tell your story best. So I want you to start off by telling me what you see yourself most as right now. You have lived through more than most people ever will. And I know advocate is a very proud title that you carry. Um, how else do you introduce yourself to people when you meet them for the first time? Well, it's always been interesting because people will say, oh, what do you do? And I'll say, well, I'm a speaker. And then it goes into, well, what do you talk about? And then I tell my story and then they look at me quite differently. Like, oh, okay. And then I started to say, I'm a motivational speaker. And then just that word there changed. Oh, okay. So you talk about it in a positive way. Got it. And it changed the tone of the whole conversation. So I say like so many titles and it depends on who I'm speaking to, but uh, motivational speaker, internet safety expert, child safety advocate, missing persons advocate, victim advocate, Lots of different hats to wear, but really all under the same mission. And that is fighting predatory crime against women, against children, against people in general, and then also helping people overcome adversity. So many of us, I dare say every single human being has suffered something in their lives that they have had to overcome. And that you can do that no matter what that situation is that there is definitely a light at the end of the tunnel. Would you take us back to um, sort of the origins of your story? I mentioned just a few minutes ago, you and I are both from um, just outside of Pittsburgh, uh, a little place called Robinson Township <laughs> and um, Montour High School, Gus Spartans. Um, you know, we were six years apart in high school and I came across your story as an adult. Um, and as an adult who by that point in life had had nieces, nephews, children, and while your story and your experience was impactful at its core, as is to all the moms and dads listening, I know they're going to feel this even more. And um, so I want you to tell us at the level you're comfortable with what happened to you. Sure. So we have to first go back to 2001, 2002. And people, when they hear my story, often they'll say, well, how did you not know better? There's all this information now. How did you not know better? How could something like this happen? Well, back in 2001, 2002, there was no internet safety education. There was nobody talking about this. The internet was incredibly new. And I can remember that my brother, who is nine years older than me, who I believe actually went to high school with you for a brief moment there. Yeah. Yep. Kind of crazy, small world. He would play these games online and it to me looked like a board game. And I thought that's so cool that you could have your friends play a game with you and that you didn't have to ask if they could come over. You didn't have to worry about them getting home. You didn't have to worry about any of that. They were already there and that's how I looked at it. I was like, oh, this is a board game, how cool. And then I would play these games which weren't online but you had to feed and dress like cats and dogs and stuff, like little kid stuff. And it was super fun and comfortable. In and how old were you at the time, Alicia? Remind us of that. So I was 12 and then 13 when all of this was okay. going on. And then I can remember 
in school, my friends no longer wanted to go to the park or the mall or the movies. They wanted to stay indoors and stay online. And I was really one of the last of my friends to start using the internet. But in order to maintain my friendships, I had to. That's where all of my friends were. So broke down, got a screen name, got online, and started talking to my friends from school. And let me tell you, back then, it was like a middle school utopia. It was incredible. My friends were there, and then we all got along. So it was, cyberbullying wasn't yet a thing. Kids really didn't know that that was a method or a way to use to be bullied and to bully each other. Everybody got along and it was the great leveler. The popular kids were talking to the not so popular kids. And it was just a really comfortable, safe place. Now for me, I was a quiet, shy child. I was the kid who did not raise their hand in class. I was the kid who did not speak up. I was always really nervous, which is funny because now I talk all the time. This is what I do. But back then, oh my gosh, no, I was so, I was that kid. And it wasn't that I wasn't popular, but I was the kid who kind of maybe felt like wallpaper sometimes. Like I was just there. I had friends, but I was in that sort of middle group. And online, I felt like I could be myself, that I could speak up more. I didn't have to hear myself talk. I felt just more comfortable. And most importantly, I felt safe. This was my home and nothing and no one had ever hurt me here before and nothing and no one ever could. My parents sat down with me and they talked about stranger danger when it came to the internet, but that didn't work and it still won't work because I was talking to my friends from school and then they would introduce me to their friends or online, you feel so, you feel connected so quickly that you feel like you know somebody and that certainly has not changed. And my parents, like I said, they tried to talk about stranger danger, but that didn't translate into the online world. The other issue is that they didn't know much about the computer. Like I said, the internet, the computer, it was all very new. And most adults didn't know much about it. And so we had our own secret little world. This was ours as kids and kids don't get that. It was like a clubhouse or a treehouse, if you will. And it's not that our parents weren't invited in, though they definitely weren't invited, that they could not physically climb up the ladder to get in. This was ours. And because of that lack of knowledge on, on me, that I didn't know the dangers and that my parents didn't know the dangers and that really nobody knew the dangers, there was no safety net. And I was online feeling comfortable spending time with my friends, spending a lot of time online, because again, that's where kids were all the time. And if you can remember, this was back when your computer had to be plugged into the wall. You had the giant tower, the cord that went for the, there wasn't Wi-Fi. If your mom picked up the phone off the internet, you were thrown. It was a big yes. thing. It was all very complicated back then. And it makes me think now that if this phone only worked in a certain corner of the house, that's where people would spend almost all of their time. It hasn't mm -hmm. changed much today. But there I was in a chat room and I was talking to my friends and somebody was introduced to me through a friend 
who I thought was a boy around my own age. And I was naive. I was the kid who really believed, and I still believe this, but that the world was really good. And that, yes, bad things happened, but they happened to other people and in other places. And that that was something for books or movies, like that was like Jafar or something, right? Like this wasn't, that never crossed my mind. And because I said, because I was who I said I was, I trusted this person to be who they were. I never thought, okay, well, they may have a, a nefarious plan, that this is just a kid. And what I didn't know was he had immediately begun to groom me. Grooming is really quite simple. It's just pretending to be a child's friend, telling them what they want to hear versus what they need to hear. And people diminish what children go through. People diminish the struggles because it seems like, okay, you got a bad grade, not a big deal. Yes, that's a huge deal to a kid. Oh, your crush doesn't like you. That's a huge deal. Your friends called you a mean name and now you're outside of the circle. These are all really big, huge things. Kids go through so much. And what a predator's goal is, is to find that vulnerability that we all have, but children most especially have, and exploit it. And by simply seeming like a friend, and through this process, they become the only person that this child is really understood by. That this is the one true person who really gets me. And with that, the predator starts to pull the child away from the people who could help them. They kind of, in some ways, turn the child against family or friends. And not in a, your, your family is bad way, but in your family just doesn't get you way. They don't make you as happy as I do. They don't make you laugh the way that I do. They don't understand that I, I love your favorite movie. It's my favorite movie too. It's not their favorite movie. So with that, really, it is in many ways like brainwashing. It's taking apart this child bit by bit and putting them back together. And I know that that sounds kind of silly, but you have a child who who is one way in the beginning and then interacts with the world differently throughout this process. And throughout my story, through my story is a really good example of that. Now, grooming is subtle. You may not recognize it at all. In fact, that's the whole point of it is that it can take a really long time, yes, but that it is so effective and so subtle and you don't even know that it is happening. And in many of these cases, the conversations around sexuality will be introduced. And now that's a conversation you can't have with your, or you don't necessarily want to have with your parents or your friends. Mm -hmm. And this person you can feel comfortable having those conversations with. Or often what these predators will do is they will begin to push boundaries and values and want to have that child send photos. They want to break this child down. And it is so effective and so simple. 
I was speaking to a mom. So I have a lot of parents reach out to me and ask me for help that they have something going on at home that they have been made aware of and they don't know what to do. And I had a mom reach out to me and her daughter is 10 years old. So really young little girl who is playing Roblox on her grandfather's phone, which we see people doing all the time. And you would think, okay, well, this child doesn't even have their own device, so they would be safe. So she is there and she's playing this game and she's talking to a boy on there. And this has been going on for about a month and they're talking and they're talking and they're talking. And soon he starts talking about how he has to go to work and his boss is this and his boss is that. And then he says that he's going to be the best man in his best friend's wedding. And he says, okay, well, can I, can I come visit you? Uh, she told him where she lived by the state and no other information other than that, thank goodness. But he says, can I come to Arizona and visit you? And she's like, well, actually I'm, I'm 10. And he immediately, immediately says, I'm 10, we're the same age. Let me ask my mom. And he goes on and on and on. And now he's a 10 year old. Well, thankfully the grandfather, the messages came through and he caught these messages and sent them to her mother and read through them and instantly saw that these were blaring red flags. So they take the game away and try to talk to the 10 year old daughter. She doesn't listen because she's 10 and she doesn't quite understand it. And she says, well, he's 10. He said he was 10. She believed mm -hmm. him. And this really shows such a quick, easy, effective grooming where the, these conversations, he eventually in throughout this was like, I want to marry you, come to the wedding with me. It, it went from so quickly being a, a conversation to whatever it needed to be in order to groom her. Let me ask you this. I, I want to get back to your story as well, but you are, have, are hitting on so many points that I know parents are just like sort of nodding their heads at right now. We see our children's vulnerability online and it's difficult to explain to them the magnitude of potential problems, right? Because we know the world and all of its potential for evil, but we also don't want to scare our kids into um, spending time away from devices that they're inevitably going to be connected with as they grow. So what is your advice on how explicit we need to be with our kids um, and how much danger we need to tell them? Let's say at five and six years old when they start to play these apps, um, how, how specific can we get with them to scare them away from sharing too much information without going overboard? Well, first off, it's not necessarily about scaring them. Yes, you need to know the dangers in order to protect yourself. So we have to teach children a healthy sense of fear, if you will. But it's not about fear, it's about empowerment. If you know what is dangerous, then you can empower yourself to stay safe. And it makes me think about, I was doing an interview a while back and I'm sitting here and I have, I'm right on the river of, of uh, the Hudson River and looking out and there's a pier and there's a fence that goes around it and the water is right there. And I saw this little girl and she's out there and she's playing and she's probably maybe five. 
just uh, out there playing and her parents are there and they're over here and they're, they're paying attention, but not really. She starts going over to the fence and thinking, I, I should maybe jump into that water, it looks like. So I look out and she has one leg over and I run out in the middle of this interview and I'm screaming for them to go save this child. And they run over thankfully and they get her, but did she know that water was dangerous? Probably not. So there is the perfect conversation around that. You have to let your children know what is dangerous so that they can protect themselves. We teach our children to wear a seatbelt. We teach them to look both ways before they cross the street, to not touch that pot because it's hot, to not put that fork in the outlet. We teach them this because it, if they do those things, they will get hurt or they will die. And we're comfortable to have those conversations, but when it comes to bad people in the world and intending to harm them, we get uncomfortable and we don't have those conversations. And we absolutely mm -hmm. need to. And in an age-appropriate way, I'm not saying to absolutely terrify your child. This isn't this isn't horror movie language to make it so your kid can't sleep in their own bed for a long time. It's to let them know that there are dangers out there, that there are people who can hurt them. A while ago, I spoke to, gosh, I think they were second graders. They were really young. And it was my first time speaking to a group that young. And the presentation was rather short, but it was basically something happened to me. It was really bad. A bad person came and took me away from my family and I didn't want to be away from my family. And they made me lost and I didn't know how to get home. And I was scared and I was cold and, and using those sort of descriptive terms where it tells the story without getting into anything overly graphic and then saying, you know, the, the good people rescued me, but here's what I could have done to be safer. Here's what I could have done. Here's what my parents could have done. We have to realize that this is happening, that there are people in the world who are child predators and people sometimes get wrapped up in this and think, okay, internet predators, park predators, mall predators, they're all the same. It's just that they're mm. using a different avenue to get to the same destination. And the internet is really one of the easiest ways to access and groom a child. Can you take us back to your story? We left off where you um, were sort of in the process of being groomed. Um, I gave some of this information in the intro of the interview. However much more you're comfortable sharing, we would love to hear. I want to say to guys that we are respecting Alicia's boundaries, obviously these are difficult conversations to have, but in the interest of um, telling you as much of the story as possible while still respecting those, I'm kind of letting Alicia sort of guide us through this. So I'm going to kind of kick it back into your court and whatever you want to share with us, we would be happy to hear. Well, I didn't know that I was being groomed. There were no red flags. There wasn't anything to stand out that this was somebody who I just thought was a friend. And on New Year's Day 2002, I was having a family meal. We were celebrating the new year. And I can remember, I, I hold on to that memory because it is the before. It is if everything just continued on that night and it stayed on that path then everything would have been so different. And we were having this 
beautiful meal celebrating the new year. And I asked my mother if I could be excused from the table because I had a stomachache. And she said yes. And in her mind, I went upstairs to lie down and to feel better. But in reality, I got up, I slipped out of the front door, past the Christmas tree that was up, and into the coldest, darkest, iciest night that you can imagine. Now, to tell you how effective grooming is, I was a child who was scared of the dark, hated the cold, and still hate the cold with a passion, and never went outside alone after dark. Yet on this night, I walked out of my front door between dinner and dessert without a coat. I left the door open just a little bit because I was planning on coming right back through it. And I was going out to meet a friend. I don't know why. To this day, I can't tell you how, why I made that decision, but kids don't always make the best decisions. This was not a good decision. This was a huge mistake that, only co- that almost cost me my life. But kids make mistakes, and an adult should never exploit those mistakes. I walked up the street just about a block or so. And I can remember it being really quiet and really beautiful. The snow had just fallen, people's Christmas lights are up. This was my neighborhood and I felt safe. I did. And I walked up and then I realized there was nobody there. And in that moment, this little voice spoke up and it said, Alicia, what are you doing? Turn around, go home. And this voice was my intuition. This voice is my intuition. Please teach the people in your life. Teach your children, teach yourself to listen to their intuition because it is there for a reason. And how I kind of look at this is that this was the first time that I was out of out of my routine. I wasn't in school. I what my parents weren't around. I wasn't at the computer, so he wasn't in my brain. This was me and myself in a quiet environment. And in that moment, that voice spoke up and I listened to it. Turn around, go home. And I saw my house, which was just a block away. It was right there. And I went to turn around. And next thing I knew, I was in a car. And this man was squeezing my hand so tightly that I thought he'd broken it. And he was barking commands at me. Be good, be quiet. The trunk's cleaned out for you. And he forced me to look into the back seat and there was a bag back there that had a bunch of restraints and and things like that in it. People often ask me, when did you become afraid? And well, it was immediately. Immediately I knew that I was no longer in control of my life and that everything I thought, said, or did could be my last. And all of those Things that I thought, said, or did really mattered. And my goal was to not end up in that trunk. I'd seen movies. I'd seen TV shows. Bodies go in the trunk. And if I could stay out of the trunk, I thought that I had a much better chance of living through this. He drove and drove and drove. And I saw the street signs go from familiar to not recognizing him at all. all. And then eventually he hit a toll booth. And I remember having this surge of hope, thinking this is it. This is the moment that I'm, I'm going to be rescued because this person is going to 
look into this car and he's going to, or she's going to say, hey, happy new year, where are you going or whatever and be chatty because I can remember they really kind of used to be a bit more talkative and they would give like a lollipop or something. And then I, at that point, would be brave enough to say, help me, I've been kidnapped. And this would all be over. He threatened me again. And I could not stop my tears. So I figured that this person would see me crying and would ask and then report something. Surge of hope, surge of hope, surge of hope. Well, he got to the toll booth. The money was exchanged. The gate went, went up and nothing happened. Um. I, I think back to that person and imagine that they've heard my story and they may hear it all the time and think, oh, that's me. Oh no, that's my fault. And it's not their fault. You can't go through life searching for evil. That's not a good way to live. Evil doesn't always announce itself. It doesn't make itself present, but you can be trained to recognize signs. And those signs were definitely there. This person didn't have the knowledge then, so they couldn't react the way that they needed to. Now, because of the work I and a lot of other people do, they would now be trained to potentially stop the situation. Well, he continued driving and it was about five hours from Pittsburgh to Virginia. And eventually he got to his house and he dragged me out of the car, dragged me into the house, down a flight of stairs into a basement and there was a door with a padlock on it. He unlocked the door, opened it, tossed me inside, followed him behind, and this room was pitch black. He picked me up like I weighed nothing because I basically did at the time, I was really tiny, and propped me up on a table and forced me to look at him. And he said, this is going to be really hard for you. It's okay if you cry. And then he turned on the light and covering the walls were all these devices. And this looked like, like somewhere where you would torture somebody. And that, that's what it was. The media has called it a dungeon. And I don't like to use that word because I just, I don't like to say it, but that's what this was. And after that, he put a locking dog collar around my neck with another padlock and he raped me for the first time. Over the next four days, I was raped and beaten and tortured. He broke my nose in one of the struggles. He didn't feed me. People ask a lot, did you think he was going to kill you? And it wasn't a question of if. I knew that he had to get rid of me. That this wasn't a situation where I'd not seen his face, that I was blindfolded, that he could send me home and I wouldn't tell anybody. None of that was going to work. And I, I knew that. I knew that my only chance of survival was to stay alive long enough for somebody to find me. And I'd always been interested in psychology. And I'd read different books and maybe watched a few documentaries, but something instinctually, but also from a combination of that, jumped into my brain. And part of it was also because this was just after 
was right after September 11th, and there was a lot of conversation about hostage situations. People were talking about how to survive in a hijacking or in a hostage situation or something like that. And I remember seeing that, and for whatever reason, it popped up in my brain. And what my brain said to do was, you need to make yourself be seen as a person and not an object. That it is harder to take the life of a human being than it is to kill an object. And that's how he saw me. He saw me as an object. So my goal was to do whatever I needed to do to survive. And I knew that the minute I was of no use to him, which is a horrible thing to say and a horrible way to say it, but the minute that I didn't give him anything, I wasn't fun anymore, that he was going to kill me. So I did whatever I had to do to survive, no matter how humiliating or sick or brutal or disgusting, I did it. And that was where I found my strength and my power. When you're in a situation where you are completely powerless, this person decides every single thing that you will do, if you eat, if you sleep, if you are able to go to the bathroom, if you're going to get to breathe, if you're going to live, they have the power over everything. And you search for, you search for ways to get your own power. And that was my power was to get to the next moment. My power was literally to survive from one moment to the next. That if I could survive a minute, then maybe I could survive 10 minutes. And if I could survive 10 minutes, maybe I could survive five hours. And if I can survive five hours, maybe I can survive the day. And that was what my brain did. And that was sort of how I tried to, I must have take control of the situation, but there was no way to take control. That's, but to take control of what I could do, where I felt that I was doing something to help myself get through this. On the last day, which I didn't know was the last day, he looked at me and he said, I'm beginning to like you too much. Tonight we're going to go for a ride. And I knew at that moment that this sort of psychological game I'd been playing to get him to see me as a person was working because now we'd become attached. And that didn't help. He was going to need to get rid of me quicker. And after that, he fed me for the first time. And then he left for work. And it's amazing. The questions, the assumptions, the judgments that people will put against you as a survivor. As a survivor of any trauma, but most certainly sexual assault. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you try to jump out of a window? Why didn't you become MacGyver? Why didn't you know all these things that people think that they would do if they were in that situation? Please don't ever do that. Whatever that person did was exactly what they needed to do to survive. And that's brave. That's what they needed to do to survive. So it doesn't matter what you think you would have done. None of that counts. You will not be 13-year-old Alicia locked in that basement, chained to the floor. And because of that, you can never say what 13-year-old Alicia should or should not have done and what any survivor should 
or should not have done. For me, I'd been completely traumatized. I'd been terrified. And I was sort of starting to give up hope. I knew that this was the day he was going to kill me. So I was in an incredibly dark place and figured that he was playing a game where if I screamed, if I did anything, he would come in and kill me. Again, like I said, this was about just staying alive. So if I took a big chance in that moment, then he was going to kill me quicker. Time passed and I sat quietly. I cried, I prayed, and I thought about my family. And I thought about the fact that I knew that they were looking for me and that I really believe, and I still believe this in, in some ways, just not with that childhood perception that I had, but that my parents could and would and would do anything possible to keep me safe, no matter what that meant. If they had to go wake the president up and steal Air Force One, that's what they were going to go do. If they had to find a wicked witch in the woods and go make some sort of spell, that's what they were going to go do. They were going to do anything and absolutely anything that was, I was gonna say within their power, but actually beyond their power, because that's how much they loved me. And that they were going to do any of those things to find me and gosh darn it, they were going to find me. I just needed to be alive long enough for them to do that. And I remember having this thought and then I got really strong like in my, in my survival thoughts, I thought, okay, I'm gonna fight. I, I, I got this really bit of a sense of bravery. And I thought, okay, what would I do if I were bigger, if I were stronger, if I were a superhero or one of the action heroes in the movies that I've seen, what would I do? And then I very quickly realized that I tried to fight and that did not work and that I was not going to be able to do that. That this was going to be a fight to the death and he was going to overpower me. There was no way for me to fight my way out of this. And then I said to myself, I'm going to die. And I gave up all hope. It went from being this high point to the lowest I'd ever felt in I think the lowest anybody could ever feel. I'd given up. And I thought about my family in a very different way. And I get really emotional with this because I, I talk about feeling powerless, but this is where I felt the most powerless. When was the last time I told my mom or dad or my brother or my grandmother or anybody that I loved them and not like, love you too, good night, but I love you. Did they know how much I loved them? Did they know that I didn't run away? Did they know that, that I was okay? And by that, I know that sounds a little weird to say. All I wanted them to do was know that I was okay. And by okay, I don't mean living. I don't mean getting through the situation. I mean that I would be okay with the terrible outcome. And I wanted them to be okay. I wanted them to be able to move forward and, and to comfort them and to strengthen them. And I couldn't. I couldn't be there for them to help them through this. And then I would probably never 
get to be there for them again. So I started to accept my own death and I drifted off and I don't mean necessarily sleep, but I drifted off into disassociation. I went away and time passed, hours passed. And I was brought back to awareness at this point. I don't know if I said this before. At this point, I'd been chained to the floor in his bedroom. So I was upstairs in this house. And I heard these voices banging on a door downstairs. It sounded quite angry, screaming something about having guns or something. And in my terrified state, I rolled underneath the bed to try to hide from them, thinking that he had sent people to come kill me. Not that this was anything else, that he, like I said, I'd given up at this point and that this was in no way going to be anything good. So I rolled underneath the bed to try to, to hide from them, to figure out the situation, to be as quiet as possible. And I heard movement over there and I watched these boots walk from one side of the bed to the side that I was hiding under. And this man in this very terse voice commanded that I crawl out and I put my arms up. And I can remember crawling out from underneath of that bed dragging that cold, heavy chain behind me, trying to cover myself because I had no clothing on, putting my hands up and looking up and staring into the barrel of a gun and thinking, this is it. This is the moment I'm going to die. But then he turned around and I saw that it was law enforcement by what was written on the back of his jacket. And all these officers and agents rushed into the room literally cut the chain from around my neck and set me free and gave me a second chance at life. I am so incredibly lucky to have survived this. Statistically, children don't survive the first three hours. In most cases in a stranger abduction, children are murdered within the first three hours. This was day four and there was no day five for me. And I I firmly believe that had they not come that day in fact at that hour I would not be here they came into the home broke into the home whatever you want to call it around 4 15 and he was due to arrive home from what he had said I hate saying home because this was not a home but he was due to arrive back there around 4 30 had they had a flat tire had they stopped for coffee? Had they just said, hmm, we don't feel like doing this today. We don't believe, but we don't think it's actually real. I would not be here today. And when I say it being real, what happened was while he had me, he was live streaming what he was doing to me to other people online. So he was broadcasting this live. And somebody who was watching this was able to recognize me from my National Center for Missing Exploited Children poster that had been sent globally. And he was able to recognize the little girl in this horrendous live stream as the little girl on the missing poster. And he contacted law enforcement and they were able to trace down the IP address through one of the screen names that the perpetrator had used. It was 
a miracle. And it was essentially one bad person coming forward about another. But here's what that makes me think. And I tell myself this because I know that there's so much evil in this world. There is unbelievable amounts of evil and evil people in this world. But there is so much more good. There's so much, so much more good. And good just has to be louder. So we have somebody there who did the the right thing for maybe not exactly the right reason. So when you have good doing good for the right reason, how much more powerful is that? That is an unstoppable force. But we have to speak up. Good has to speak up. Good has to, to stand up for what is right and be brave enough to do that. Evil, all the darkness of the world hides in darkness and in secrecy. And by speaking up, we can shine a light on it. And by shining a light on it, we can examine it and we can fight it. We can understand it. If we say, okay, well, that's happening. Yeah, I get it. That's happening, but that's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to my family. This is happening to other people and it's so big and so terrible. It's not a problem that we can actually solve. So let's just ignore it. That's not going to help. Ignoring the situation, pushing it under the rug will never make it better. It will only grow and grow and grow. I'm listening to you tell this story and um, to hear you speak so eloquently, so purposefully with such courage is just astonishing, Alicia. I mean, this is, um, like you said, um, statistically, the odds were on your side. You said the time that these law enforcement agents arrived, but also spiritually, um, I, I would guess you have to believe in some sort of a, a greater power after this experience. And I, I just, I have to know how you can be so strong and how you can use that horrible experience to help others when it was so, so immensely difficult for you. It was immensely difficult. And I didn't know how difficult it would really be. I thought, okay, I would, after my rescue, I would be rescued. I'd be reunited with my family. I'd go back to school. Yeah, people would say some stuff. It might hit the paper. <laughs> but who really cares? This is going to be a big story and I'm going to move on. Maybe I'd have a few nightmares. Maybe I'd have to sleep in my parents' room for a week or a month even, but that life would continue on. And I very quickly realized that the life that I had lived was done. That that 13 year old girl was murdered in that basement in both spirit and in innocence and so many things, but also in that the life that I had lived was now over. That, and, and you may remember this being in Pittsburgh, the media didn't take to this quite the way that they should have, because I was the first known case of, of child abduction by an online predator. This was the first time anybody had ever heard of this. People could not understand how something like this could happen. So in order to create sort of a self-defense mechanism, my family was shown as maybe a bad family or I was a bad kid. And it got really out of hand with the victim blaming. The victim blaming was absolutely atrocious in my case. I could not go 
outside without having somebody come up to me and saying something terrible. And this was on national news. This was everywhere. There was no way to escape this. And I can remember literally taking blankets and putting them over my window, taking a hammer and a nail, which I had no idea what I was doing at the time, and nailing blankets up over the windows because I was so scared that the media would take a picture of me in my nightgown or in a towel or something and then make judgments about that. That was one of the, the parts of this that held me back the most is that we were not supported, not, not, not by everybody. I'm not saying that. There were some really great folks who reached out. Uh, one reporter reached out and all she did, she called my mom and she just cried to her. She just cried for like 10 minutes. They cried together and it was so beautiful, but there were those who just did not understand it. And the community just did not understand it. And that was one of the reasons that I spoke out. So this happened to me and I was struggling from flashbacks and, and nightmares and really intense PTSD symptoms. It was really, really hard. But I realized that this was a miracle and that people don't always get this. Kids don't always get this. And that the reason that this happened to me is because there was no internet safety education. There was nobody talking about this. And if this could happen to me, it could happen to other children. This could happen to other kids. And that I had the position, that I had the ability, or so I thought, uh, even though I was so incredibly shy, that I was going to tell my story, that I was going to get up in front of audiences and I was going to tell the story because I knew that this could happen to others and that I was given a second chance at life and I wasn't going to waste that. Now, I also had this belief and people think this a lot. You hear this a lot. Oh, that happened for a reason. Everything happens for a reason that there's some sort of cosmic plan and that everything's laid out. Well, okay. So I thought that I thought, okay, I was rescued for a reason. And this is why I'm supposed to go out there. This was the big plan all along. And then through my work, I started working with a lot of parents who have missing children or whose babies have been murdered. You try to tell them that that was a part of a plan, that that happened to them for a reason, that I was rescued for a reason, but their child was not. And I learned that, no, it's not that things happen in our life for a reason but that if we keep moving forward, if we have faith, and by faith, I don't necessarily mean faith in a higher power, it could be, but faith in yourself, faith in the future, faith in the good in the world, just faith and hope and, and a, a positive outlook when you can have it and to the pursuit of excellence, we can make purpose out of the chaos that happens in our lives. And that doesn't mean that it's easy, Telling my story isn't, isn't easy. It's a hard story to tell. It hurts to still go back there. You saw, I, I can still cry on a moment's notice because it is still there and it still hurts. I don't want others to feel that pain. That, that is how I cope. And, and I, I've realized this in, in my life through a couple other things that have happened. 
that I go, oh gosh, that was really bad and it really hurts and I'm in a really crappy place right now. I bet I'm not alone in this. I bet there's other people who are going through this too. I want to be there for them. I want to support them or I want to make certain that they do not end up in this position. And so I took it on almost as a duty that I was rescued, that I received this chance and that I in some ways owed it to the world to go out and share my story. And this was again, before anybody was talking about internet safety, people not had any idea. It was all so incredibly new. MySpace was, was popular, but like barely, it was even like the start of MySpace, right? This was, this was back and people listened. So I can remember my very first presentation. I stood up in front of a group of students and I froze. I completely froze. My first presentation, I completely froze and my mind went blank, which is not good when you're speaking. And I stood there and I started to cry. And my mom came up and she like stood behind a podium and she was basically feeding me lines that we had come up with in the speech. And I was repeating them. And I'm sure this presentation looked ridiculous, but almost every single student came up to me after the presentation and they were moved by it. They understood, they said, wow, I'm doing this online and now I'm not going to, or even some who'd been hurt in their lives and had never told anybody, now they were going to come forward and get the help that they needed. They understood and they listened. And the reason they did that is because it wasn't this perfect little speech. It was the true human experience. They mm. understood that. They understood what it took to get up in front of a crowd and share something like that. And that was the moment that I realized that, okay, my goal is to save one life. And I remember that's one thing my dad said, if he sat down with me and he said, Alicia, you know, this is preventative work. You may not know the difference that you make. Are you okay with not feeling like a superhero? And absolutely, absolutely. It's all about saving one life because I truly believe that to save one life is to change the world. One person impacts so, so much. And soon I was speaking to, to parents and to teachers and law enforcement and training the FBI and uh, doing a lot of different media interviews and sharing my story really publicly. And it was interesting because people stopped coming up to me and saying things like, oh, I saw your story on the news and I'm so sorry that happened to you. And then sort of pity me or, or want to comfort me, which was is sweet sometimes. And other times it was like, okay, I just want to buy some eggs. Please let me go to the grocery yeah. store. <laughs> but then they started coming up to me and saying amazing things. And I remember one instance I was at at King's on Steubenville Pike, which is now gone. I remember King's. Yes, oh my gone. gosh, yes. yes. So, Route 68. Yes, yeah. so we were sitting there with my family having a meal and people would come up or they would talk just above a whisper so I could sort of hear them. And I would all often hear anywhere I went for many, many years. 
oh, it's that girl, it's that girl, it's that girl, it's that girl, it's oh, this, that. And it, sometimes it was really not nice things at all. But this time, this group of people were talking and they started to get up and come over to the table. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to tell them off. I'm going to say all kinds of things. But I had it in my mind that I would. And then they came up and they're like, hey, aren't you Alicia? And I was like, here we go. I was like, hey, aren't you Alicia? You came to my daughter's school. And, you know, she came home from that presentation and she said, mom, you aren't protecting me enough. You know, look at my, oh my screen name. Do you think this is appropriate? Look at what I'm doing. That's online. awesome. Why are you not paying attention? Yeah, they came home and That's they awesome. sort of like told the mom, like, hey, protect me more, which I thought was really cool that they they listened they heard it and that's all that mattered and I just remember having that moment of I'm being seen as an advocate and a change maker versus just mm -hmm. somebody that this had happened to and I am okay with that anybody who comes up to me and says something like that please always feel free that's to amazing. do so and I, I I get those messages a lot and I get people who do that a lot and and it is it's amazing because it means that I have made a difference. When I first started doing this, I had this little squeaky voice. I was really shy, so I'd gone through this horrible experience and I thought, what difference am I really going to make? What am I really going to do? Am I actually going to save anybody? And I can say that I have. I can mm -hmm. say that I, I, really, I really have, and not that that's been easy and not that I've done that alone. I've had the support of many people and I'm incredibly lucky to have such a strong family to have helped me with that. At the same time, I have people come up to me, uh, a lot of parents who almost always really upsets me, but they'll say, it's really brave what you do. Something similar happened to my daughter or my son. And I hope someday they are brave enough to share their story like you do. And I just sit there for a moment. What? No. I, there's now this movement where you're not brave unless you're picked up advocacy and you're telling your story. That because something happened to you, you are now supposed to. That this is now your requirement. You've suffered something terrible. You were in a fire. Now you're supposed to go fight fires. No, not necessarily. If that's something that you want to do, if that's a choice that you make, absolutely go do it. But that is not a necessary step. And that's not anything anybody should be pushed into doing. It is, it's, it's not easy. It is a path that I chose really young and I didn't map this out. I didn't say, oh, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do as a career. I didn't think that. I just started talking to kids. And that was what it was. If you look at my organization, it's called Alicia Project. And the reason for that is, is because I was a kid and that was the only thing I had a concept of, of completing something as a project. You complete projects. This was a project. It was like a school project to me. It was a project. And so that's really what it was. I, I didn't, I, I didn't think it was something I needed to do as part of my healing process. Now, it has helped taking this horrible, awful situation and giving it a purpose has helped so much in the healing process. But that may not be the path for everybody. Healing is your own path and your own journey. It is 
determined by you. And people, you hear that a lot, healing journey. And when you think of a journey, I don't know about, like, when I go on, I wouldn't even call it a hike, I'd call it maybe a walk. My husband and I have been walking more often because there's a whole lot to do right now. So we'll go for a walk in the woods on like a very flat path. Maybe sometimes there'll be a hill, but it's not really a hike. I wouldn't call that a journey. A journey is something that is difficult, that there are ups and there are downs and there are, you get lost and then you find your way. A journey is not easy. Healing is not easy. Healing is a journey and it takes time. And sometimes it is a hundred steps forward and 99 steps back. And that is okay. People compare their traumas with others so often. They'll say, well, and I have people almost at every single presentation, somebody will come up to me and say, I went through something sort of similar to what you went through, but it's not as bad as what you went through. It's not like what you went through. And then they'll go on and they'll tell me the story of something that they've survived. And it's horrendous. It's horrible what has happened to them. And it is no way better or worse than what happened to me. I wouldn't choose one over the other. Your pain is defined by you. Your pain is defined by what happened to you and how it impacts you personally. We tend to compare each other so much in, in so many ways in, in life. But survivors will do that too. They'll say, wow, this person has gone through something that I think is so much worse. And look, they're doing so much better. What is wrong with me? And I've been in that place. I've said, wow, that this person has gone through something so much worse, but I'm still having a hard time. Why? Is there something wrong? Am I, am I really broken in some way? Am I not going to be able to get over this? And the point is, yes, you get over it every single day. Every single day that you wake up and get out of bed, one thing I, I say is that sometimes the bravest thing that you can do is just make yourself a cup of tea. And I, I feel like we've all had those days where it is so hard to just get up and get your feet on the ground and go do something for yourself. That's bravery. That's strength. Strength doesn't have to be standing up in front of an audience and and taking on a cause or a mission or, or something like that. It is not your responsibility. Something happened to you. It is not your responsibility to change it. And I, I think I say that so clearly because I felt like it was my responsibility. Like I said, I felt like I had a duty that this had happened to me and that I just, I had to give back. You don't release that from yourself. Something happened to you, but you, you don't have to go and fight against it. You can, and that's beautiful. And your voice is so welcome. But take your time. Take time to mm -hmm. heal. Can I ask you too, I know that a lot of your advocacy these days, and we touched on this in the beginning a little bit, focuses on what we can do as caretakers and as parents. Um, very practical and, and simple tips that we can remind our, our kids of. Can you just give us a little bit of information, maybe even some specific lines to start conversations with kids on internet safety? Because I know there are parents out there who really want to tackle this, but they want to make sure they're saying the right thing. So what's like a line you say to a mom or dad that they can then sort of open the conversation with for their kids? When I started speaking out, like I said, MySpace was popular. 
And I remember I spoke to a group of parents and this mom was like, well, I know my daughter's not on MySpace. Okay. How do you know that? And she said, well, because I have the email address for the house. That doesn't make any sense. What? She, she didn't <laughs> know. Yeah, no, right. That's it has funny. an infinite oh number gosh. of email addresses. But the fact is that she did not know and people did not know back then. And now we're in a complacent stage. We went from clueless to complacent where, okay, these applications will protect my child or they're teaching that at school. So I don't need to, to worry about that. Or my kid knows better. I hear that a lot. Oh, I have a good kid. It's not that your kid isn't good. This happens to all kids. In fact, mm -hmm. honestly, the good kids, it's kind of easiest to groom because they are naive. Right. They are the ones who are trusting. They are the ones who, who believe what is being told. So there's so much. Right now, we are so concerned with this virus coming in and getting us in our home. We're washing our hands. We're washing our groceries. We're wearing masks. We're doing all of this. And it's, it's necessary. We do not want to bring this home to our families and, and hurt people. What we don't realize is that the predator, the cyber predator, the internet predator is already in your home. You got one of these or a gaming system or a laptop or a tablet, whatever it is, the predator is already in your home. They're there. It's if you come across them, they're already there. They're already in your kid's hands. Because they That's are terrifying to think about. It's really. absolutely terrifying. I mean, no, it is. It's because you're it's right. Terrifying. Like, and you don't know who's going to show up on the apps. I mean, you you brought up gaming, and I know a lot of parents just went ping because these sort of um, in platform chat like abilities where you may think, okay, my kid doesn't have a messaging app, or he's not on Facebook Messenger, or he he's the one. I mean, there are so many ways for people to, like you said get in and have contact. Roblox is something that you brought up. I know like Fortnite people talk on, I mean, all of the gaming systems, like, do you believe in apps? And if so, which ones do you endorse that the child internet safety apps, or does it all have to be kind of that old school education, the things that you're always pushing, which is just sort of open and honest conversations, maybe a combination of both. It's absolutely a combination. It has to be a combination of all of it. People will download an app on their phone and then they'll think, okay, my kid's safe. What app have you ever downloaded that has not, you know, does it always work? Does it crash? Right. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, and also those, uh, you think technology changes so frequently that some of these platforms, I mean, I don't, it would be impossible to keep up. Yeah, it's not, it's not foolproof. It's not the answer. And that's where the complacency comes in. It's like, okay, I downloaded this application. I'm using this safety tool. Done. Check that box off, kids safe. And no, those applications are not foolproof. And if a predator, so let's go back a little bit to like the gaming systems and, and where these predators are first off. People seem surprised to learn that predators are on kids' games. Of course they're on the kids' games. They're where the kids are. Right. Predators are used to go stand around the park because that's where the kids are. They're going to be where the kids play. They're going to be where the kids are comfortable. Only now the kids have very limited supervision and they can be anybody. They can pretend to be that 10 year old. It's not hard to do. And such an easy way to groom a child is to play a game with them. 
mm-hmm. to to be a like I said, it's to be a friend, right? So that's where the predators are. They're going to be on the different games. They're going to be on Snapchat and TikTok, and they're they're going to be on Fortnite and Roblox, and they're they're out there. They're going to be where the kids spend most of their time because who they are looking to harm is children. So they're going to be where the kids are. So you hear that a lot where, okay, well, for example, the the 10-year-old girl I spoke about earlier, well, she doesn't have a phone. She's on her her grandfather's phone all the time. Right. So as long as they have access on, oh, my kid only plays video games. Yes, with people that there is always, there's always a danger. And that doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. mean that there is an imminent definite threat that is on the way to you, but you need to put, you need to take the time to put things in place to keep yourself safe. Like I said, we wear gloves, we wear masks, we do all of this. Well, you still need to do that in your life in this way. You need to protect your family. And so what parents need to do is first, they need to educate themselves. There is so much to learn. I learn something new every day. It's it's wild how much there is to learn with acronyms and and the fact that emojis mean so many different things and that's changing every day. And there's a new app. There's literally a new app every day that kids are rushing to. It's so it's moving so quickly. You need to start. Sit down and educate yourself. Learn what you can. And then you have to monitor what your children are doing online. Parents sometimes are so concerned about the child's privacy, and I understand that. This isn't about getting your kid in trouble, not at all. So say you put a monitoring device on and you find out that your kid tried a cigarette. Horrible, completely against the rules, all of that. You find out. You don't pick up the phone and say, hey, I saw that you did this. That's not what it's about. It's not about getting your child in trouble. It's about keeping them safe. And so you are able to, you need to be able to pick up that device at any point mm-hmm. in time, anytime, be able to log in. So you need to know all the passwords and you need to be able to go through it. Don't like put it, I, I saw a tip the other day that said, put it on your calendar to check your kid's device. You're, I get that. Okay, fine. What if your kids, oh, like they're going to know that, the, okay, that's when I go delete it and I make my screensaver like a picture of me right. and mom. Right, right, right. Or my background image, right? So that you have to be a little sneaky. I know that sounds terrible, but it's not about getting them in trouble. It's about being ahead of the danger. So that's really important. But what is most important is having an open line of communication with your child, being able to talk to, letting your child know that they can come to you with absolutely anything at all. And and you hear that a lot, oh, I'm really close with my mom or I'm really close with my dad. What does that really mean? Well, it really needs to mean this. It needs to mean that it needs, yeah, it needs to mean that your child can come to you with literally anything at all without fear of punishment or taking the device away. Kids are so afraid that if they come to you, you're going to take away their phone or their tablet or their gaming system. And of course, they're terrified. That is their connection. And right now, that is their only connection. 
really to the outside right. world and to their friends. So you are taking away their ability to connect with anybody. And that's something I'll ask kids a lot. I'll, I'll say, would you tell your parents this? Or would you tell your parents that? And okay, well, why wouldn't you tell them? And the answer is almost always, I don't want to get in trouble. So let your child mm-hmm. know that that's not what it's about, that they can come to you with anything. That you're, and this seems young and it's not, your nine-year-old daughter can come to you and say, dad, I took this photo. I wasn't wearing anything in it. I sent it to somebody and now they're threatening me. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And you stay calm. As right. calm as you can. Which would be insanely difficult, but be. you're right. You sit down, you sit at the table, maybe make a cup of cocoa, cookies, whatever. And you sit down and you tell them how proud you are of them for coming forward. You make this a good habit because there are going to be instances in their life where they need to ask for help and that it's okay to ask for help. And you solve the problem together that you support them, that you love them, that you're proud of them. And that's it, that they are not bad. Yes, they made a bad choice. They made a mistake, but that does not make them a bad kid. It does not change your perception of them in any way. It doesn't make you love them any less or respect them any less or want to take away their device. But that this is happening, that everybody's online. Predators are online. Kids are online. My kindergarten teacher is online. Everybody's online. (laughs) And so there's going to be different dangers that children can fall into. My story with child abduction is really on the far end of the spectrum, but there are so many other dangers. There's cyberbullying. There's child sexual exploitation. There's so many horrible things that could happen again one not being worse than the other I'm not saying that but that kids need to know that they can ask for help I believe that nearly every child is going to be the victim of something online because that's where they're spending almost all of their time so they need to know that they can come to you and then that you need to know that you are not a bad parent that this happened that it's not because you did something wrong. Maybe you were a little too lenient. Maybe you gave them the advice too early. Yeah, I get that, but that's not your fault. You're not to blame. Something happened and you got ahead of it and now you can be more careful going forward. And that's what it's all about. It's about constantly improving. Mm -hmm. It's not about feeling like, oh man, I messed up. Here's the thing too. You can do everything you can do to keep your family, you, your child, safe. Evil can still get in. I, I think of it like a gas Very but sometimes. True. Right. I think of it like a gas sometimes. And like a gas will find any little, any little crevice or, or slight space that it can fit in and, and fill a room. And mm-hmm. that's what evil is. Sometimes it gets in anyway. So then you need to know what to do from that point and, and how to report and, and that it's, it's okay. Things happen in our lives that are, are truly horrible, but that we can all, you can overcome, you can overcome just about anything. And not that it's easy, but that you can. Well, I would love to 
wrap things up by telling people how they can support some of the work that you're doing, because um, if you go to your website, you can see the tremendous pro uh, progress that you've made with Alicia's Law in various states, which is absolutely work that needs to be done. But I know that there are parents who are going to want to sort of further inform themselves on this journey. So tell us where we can find you and um, some of the projects that you're working on coming up so that we can keep tabs. Sure. So going over Alicia's Law quickly, Alicia's Law is one of the efforts that I am really most proud of. Alicia's Law, my namesake, has passed in 12 states. And what it does is it help, helps to fund the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Forces. So it provides training, boots on the ground, resources, so that they can actually go out and rescue these children. They are so really overworked with this when you think about how much cybercrime there is against children and that some states don't even have one full-time ICAC officer so that I'd had I wouldn't think that that would be the case given like you said the preponderance of potential issues that can come up I mean I know even having worked in news thinking of stories that center around cyberbullying and law enforcement trying to debate you know how to charge someone where one person ends up seriously injured or dead. I mean, there are so many, it's, it just shocks me that there aren't um, more resources like dedicated to that. There's not. And that's something that is thankfully changing and Alicia's law being one of the reasons in Wisconsin, it passed a few years ago. And in the two years since it's passed, they have arrested a thousand predators. Good for you. Bravo. It, it, that it's, is re it's real. It's really making a difference. So my big thing has always been, because there's so much talk about things now, so many news stories and so many this and so many that, I don't want to be a part of the chatter. I want to make a difference and be a part of the change. So my goal is to change, not just talk about it. And the other thing in Wisconsin, which I get really giddy about, and I'm so excited about, is that there are these dogs, there's real life fluffy dogs, that are able to sniff out electronic devices. So a phone, a laptop, or even a micro SD card, which is no bigger than my, my pinky nail, actually, which is really tiny, and no thicker than it. And how easy would it to be to hide that storage device anywhere, and that law enforcement may miss it? So what this dog is able to do is he is able to sniff out that technology and a case is only as strong as its evidence. Wow. And what they did so, was they named him Kozak after me. So oh, that's so cool. It's, it's so cool. And it took about a year, but right before everything got shut down, I got a chance to meet him in, in March of uh, this year. And he is amazing. I, I got to go on the search warrant and watch him work. And he actually did find a device. It was it was amazing to, to see it in action. It's one thing to pass a law and the same thing. Okay, preventative work. You're not gonna know the difference that you make. When you find out that you have made a difference, it, it's pretty amazing. And it's such a push forward to keep going. So now, working on Alicia's law, getting passed in all states. It's a tricky law to pass because it covers some really painful, horrible topics that some people yeah. just really, like I said, they want to push under the rug. And if we don't hear about it, it's not happening. And the fact is that it's only causing it to grow worse. And with the lockdown and everything, 
haven't been able to work on it at all this year. So really going to, to fight for it for it next year. So if anybody has any ideas about that or wants to connect about helping me push that forward, because always excited to work with other people, please reach out. And the way that you can reach out. So I have aliciakozak.com. There's a lot of safety tips on there, a lot more information, as well as I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter on at it's ITS Alicia Kozak word of advice. Don't ever make your screen name ITS because everybody says, what's your handle? And you say, Oh, it's Alicia Kozak. And they go, oh, okay. <laughs> Alicia. And they search Alicia Kozak. And then they don't find you. Yes. It's, it's quite That's a thing. Funny. So don't do that. Um, it's, it's, it's been an interesting thing, but yes, it's at ITS Alicia Kozak. And I would love to hear from you. I, I do this work so that I can really reach people and connect with people. And if there's anything I can ever do for you, please reach out. I've been giving a lot of presentations virtually, which has been great because I've been able to speak not only to the kids, but also to more parents because I'm able to fit it into the schedule a little bit better for them. Mm -hmm. So I'm also able to speak in this state and this state or this country and this country in a day. So it's been kind of a, not I don't say an outside, but uh, if you were going to find something uh, that was good, yeah. uh, this is this is something that's good, and that's something that's really important right now. You and I are connecting on here, and for me to talk to basically anybody but my husband who's right there, uh, you need to connect online. And kids are doing the same thing. We have moved everything to virtual, and kids are spending so much time online and this is how they're connecting and yes they may connect with their friend from school but that doesn't feel a whole lot different than connecting to somebody else and kids live in this world where their self-worth is completely defined by how many likes or followers they have I mean if you go on TikTok you will see there's there's truly kids crying because they say please follow me please do this, please do that, that this is how they define their space and their importance in the world. And please teach your kids that that's not the most important thing in the world. Be likable in the real world, friends, yeah. not followers, that that is not the most important thing. But also you can talk to kids and that doesn't mean anything because their friend has this many followers or that many followers. And they're, they're looking for that path to influencer. That's a, a true yeah. career now. And because of that, kids are engaging in more risky behavior. They're connecting with complete and total strangers because they just want that follower number to go up. And that's what's really important to them. So you just have to really be on top of this. There are a lot of a lot of pluses to the internet. I mean, I wouldn't be able to find my way to the grocery store some days without a GPS. Like it, it, it's necessary. We wouldn't be able to talk right now, you and I, Sunny. I wouldn't be able to talk to my mom. Like we wouldn't be able to connect or create or share information the way that we do. It is a beautiful, amazing, magical tool. But it is the World Wide Web. That WWW stands for World Wide Web. And what that means, it is, it is all the good and all the bad of the world in these tiny little devices. And you have to just be careful. It doesn't mean that something will happen, but it something could happen. And so mm -hmm. you just need to be careful. Realize that it can happen to you. It can happen to your family. 
I never thought something like this could happen to me, yet it did. And there's people tend to believe that something can't happen to them until it does. And then you're like, oh, okay, I get it. It can happen. Or if it happens to somebody close to them. So if it happens to their their sister or their mom or, or something like that, they go, okay, well, I can relate to this now. Let me be that person that, and I tell this to kids, let me be that real life person that this happened to. I wasn't torn from the silver screen of a horror film or written in the pages of a scary book. This happened in real life. And I know I'm on your screen right now or I'm in your headset and it seems like, wow, this is like a movie. And in some ways it feels like a movie looking back at my own life, but it's not. This really happened and it can really happen to you. So you really need to protect your family, your children, yourself from this. Well, you have been so vulnerable and just very gracious with um, all of the wisdom that you have gathered up. So I appreciate your time, Alicia. Thank you so, so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. That was intense, and I cannot express to you how grateful I am to Alicia for coming on to the show and opening up her heart, um, which cannot be easy after what she's been through to share that information and that story with us. So tremendous, tremendous gratitude to Alicia. And be sure that you follow her on Instagram at It's Alicia Kozak. As you heard her just mention, she does frequently comment on things relating to um, child internet safety and all of its sort of peripheral issues as they happen in real time. And I have really enjoyed hearing her perspective on some things that have been in the news recently. And I know that I will continue to go back to her website to get tips on how to keep the kids safe online. Her website is aliciakozak.com. My website is sunny.me, S-O-N-N-I.me. Check back in there for blog posts throughout the week on all sorts of topics. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. I know you don't think it makes a difference, but it actually makes a huge difference in getting these shows out to people who might find them to be useful or interesting, especially this episode. I am so, so... um, just confident that Alicia's work now is going to impact so many children for the better down the line. So thank you so much for listening, guys. I will see you soon with more and stay safe, stay sane, and stay healthy. Talk to you guys soon. (laughs) 